Hi, everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Jonas Trebak from the University of Copenhagen and Dr. Alexander Bartelt from LMU Munich. They both recently joined us for a webinar on the physiological mechanisms underlying metabolic adaptations to exercise training and cold exposure. Let's dive in. So the first question here is for you, Jonas. This question is, in your publication, you describe the wild type and skeletal muscle NAMPT knockout mice. Did you also phenotype the heterozygote animals? And do they have an intermediate phenotype or are levels still sufficient in these animals? That's a good question. I mean, we, in the initial phase, we did we did do some studies in the heterozygous mice and but but when we when we when we um, found the very you know, profound phenotype in the uh, in the in the full knockouts, then we sort of went in in that direction. But and we didn't really pursue the potential intermediate phenotype that we would we would expect from the heterozygous mice. But but to be honest, that as I recall, the data we didn't see much of a phenotype in the heterozygous mice. Uh, they were most mostly like the the wild type mice, which I also would you know expect from the NAD levels, which were reduced, but not to the same extent as in the uh, in the knockouts. Okay, great, thank you. This next question here is for you, Alex. What do you think is the role slash contribution of shivering thermogenesis to cold acclimatization? Yeah, I think this is a. A matter of debate, and therefore there's a, a great question to kick this off. I think there are multiple papers that now have actually measured shivering, for example, by motion detectors, see how really muscle shivers. And uh, these have a great resolution, so you can also measure small peaks and muscle muscles shivering. And um, there are the papers that show that definitely cold increases shivering, but it's very difficult to really take that away and uh, measure its actual contribution. I remember there's a paper, I think it came out in Nature Medicine some time ago, where they used uh, uh, one of uh, the South American aerotoxins, curare, that would block shivering and use that to determine the relative contribution. So if you refer to that, probably it is important during the first couple of hours. How much it is, I'm not quite sure. It's difficult to measure. Certainly, we have also in the past done models that impact on muscle metabolism in the cold. And clearly, if muscle shivering does not work properly, cold exposure is severely dangerous for the mouse and it cannot survive. Okay, great. Well, not great for the mouse, but great answer. (laughs) My next question here is for you, Jonas. This question is, do you have plans to do future treadmill studies? And if so, will you include the knockout mice and the heterozygote mice? Jonas, I don't think we will include the the heterozygote mice. All the exercise studies that that we are doing and and the work that we are with the named in muscle mice will, will be with the inducible model. And I can I can say for, for, for those uh, for that model at least the heterozygous mice those don't show any phenotype whatsoever. So no, we will we will only we will only do the wild type and the uh, and the knockout mice. 
in the future. But it's a good it's a good suggestion, and, and but I don't think we would we would see anything to be honest. Great, Alex. This question is for you. What is the reason for why failure to remove misfolded proteins results in the whitening of brown adipose tissue? Is it that these misfolded proteins lead to loss of mitochondria? Yeah, so it's a it's actually a relatively slow process. We've done experiments where the mice were born at thermal neutrality in the absence of any cold. And there you can see that the, the tissue is uh, completely indistinguishable from wild-type tissue. And if you then place these mice at colder temperatures, for example, room temperature, the mice adapt fine, but it takes about a week or so, again, the regular window of brown fat recruitment, where you start to see that the tissue actually, instead of becoming browner, is whiter. And the whiter histologically actually does not reflect so much how white it is actually. And it is absolutely true that a major effect that we see is a loss of mitochondria, a loss of iron that is quickly observed. And there are also hallmarks of mitophagy in this tissue. We've done also um, ubiquitome studies where we have explored what actually are the proteins that uh, are found in a hyperubiquitinated state. And uh, about 40% of the brown fat ubiquitome comprises mitochondrial proteins. And not only those are actually 40% of the mitochondrial proteins. And uh, many of those that are have been not been known to be turned over by, a proteo, by the proteosome. Is it only mitochondria? I don't think so. It's very difficult to really pinpoint one specific mechanism. But the, I'm certain that the mitochondrial dysfunction that we observe under these con con conditions is a main driver of the brown fat dysfunction. Great. Jonas, we have another question here for you. This question is, how long do knockout mice survive? So, I, I, which, which as we, I can take both models. I mean, the constitutive mice um, die prematurely. We have only had one mouse so far that has lived to actually be able to breed, but they die, and, and we only included data for the first 12 weeks uh, in, the, in the paper, but they, they still die eventually. And the inducible model, we do see um, animals, as I was saying in the presentation, I think uh, we have had mice that have lived more for more than two years. They don't have, you know, a mortality phenotype. Great. The next question here, first says, Alex, thank you for the talk. And second says, when culturing adipocytes in vitro, how important is the temperature of the incubator? Can a decreased incubator temperature induce browning? And is 37 degrees Celsius appropriate with respect to thermoneutrality? That's a fascinating question. And I think from a cell biology standpoint, we don't really have a good answer. There's a P-in-the-ass paper by uh, the Spiegelman lab where they show that also in vitro, adipocytes can sense temperature. That's very provocative. I don't think it has been picked up in the literature ever since. At the end of the day, what do cells need to be happy? And I think also it's a misconception that in the mouse, the brown fat cells are actually cold, rather the opposite. They're actually warmer. The brown fat tends to have a warmer temperature than the rest of the mouse because it needs to produce a lot more heat that is being then transported away into the body. So I don't think these terms of thermal neutrality would apply to a cultured adipocytes. 
Nevertheless, it probably makes sense to study the, the effects of temperature when culturing cells a little bit in more detail. And it could very well be that cells have a different, let's say, preference zone at which temperature they are being best cultivated. For sure, you can say that at the regular uh, incubator temperature, cells differentiate fine and uh, work fine. So it's definitely a feasible model. Okay. My next question is for you again, Alex. This question is, you mentioned the differences between mice and humans. There have been many attempts at translating these to therapies for humans. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that using brown fat and thermogenic adipocytes as a therapy for humans is a long shot goal. I mean, we are all aware of the, the small amounts of thermogenic adipocytes in humans and the very small contribution to overall energy expenditure. I study brown fat not because of its translational potential, rather because of its unique biology. And I do think that there are a lot of secrets that we can extract from these cells that maybe teach us something about general metabolic adaptation. And I've shown some results on NFE201, for example, which uh, clearly has a very interesting role in brown fat, but uh, we use it more now as a, as a starting point to explore its role in more translational work, which, uh, for example, is in white fat cells and obesity or other metabolically relevant cells. So I think we, there's still a lot we can learn from brown fat to understand general concepts of metabolism. But if you think in terms of does brown fat matter in humans, I think the clear answer is yes. And people, even though these are mostly correlations, uh, people that have more brown fat are usually healthier and a thermogenic lifestyle, to my opinion, does really, if you pursue this on a long, on a long term scale, does really contribute to healthier metabolism. Okay. Great. So I have one last question here, and it's for both of you. So I'm going to start with Jonas, but then after Alex, you can weigh in as well. This question is, in your opinion, what is the future in this research field? What direction will your lab go based on your current data? So as I also alluded to in, in my talk, I think for, you know, for how the the inducible named knockout mice adapt in order to maintain you know, respiratory capacity uh, even with low levels of NAD. I think one thing that we haven't done yet is to study the, the mitochondrial supercomplexes and how mitochondria may adapt in, in that aspect, I think is very fascinating. And, and yeah, doing that with both in the beta state, but also with uh, acute exercise, even exercise training, I think could be something that, that could potentially explain the lack of phenotype in, in our mice. So yeah, that, that's, that's one future research direction that we will take. Great. And Alex, same question to you. In your opinion, what is the future of this research field and what direction will your lab go based on your current data? I think that all mammals with or homeotherm animals and therefore temperature is a very important denominator of metabolism. And also considering climate change, I think temperature has become or has come again into the spotlight of uh, not only public health, but the entire human race. And therefore, I'm very much interested in, in cold as one overarching principle that uh, directs our metabolism. And we're now pursuing whether there are unique and overarching concepts that we can translate, for example, the biology of brown fat into other tissues like muscle or the heart and can see whether those really 
help us to understand the physiology of temperature and the metabolic adaptation to cold and how we can maybe exploit that also to fight the other big pandemic, the other public health crisis, which is obesity and uh, cardiovascular disease. So this is the research direction we're taking at the moment. And it's very exciting because there's large overlap between things that you would have never thought are related to each other. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.